Hello, and welcome to BJGP Interviews. I'm Nada Khan, and I'm one of the associate editors of the BJGP. Thanks for taking the time today to listen to this podcast. In today's episode, we talk to Dr. Alice Harper, who is an NIHR Academic Clinical Fellow based at the Centre for Academic Primary Care at the University of Bristol. We're going to discuss the paper she's recently published in the BJGP, titled Understanding the Patient Experience of Celiac Disease Diagnosis, a Qualitative Interview Study. So thanks, Alice, for joining us to talk about this really clinically relevant paper about celiac disease diagnosis. It seems that the diagnosis of celiac disease has proven to be a bit of a challenge for some patients and also for some GPs. But tell us a little bit about why you decided to do this study. Yeah, well, interesting you say that, actually, because this project was part of a wider project that um, was being performed at the University of Bristol. Um, And my colleagues were investigating the diagnostic accuracy of the blood tests used for the diagnosis of celiac disease. As part of that study, they had a questionnaire that they sent out to patients um, who uh, ranked sort of their preferences for the diagnostic threshold. So, you know, what level of certainty they would want from their blood tests. Um, And as part of that questionnaire, there were um, free text box answers. And there was a lot coming out in those free, free text box answers, which we thought we needed to unpack a little bit more. And we were also fortunate to have some PPI um, members on our team as well. And they um, came up with um, a lot of helpful feedback in and around the diagnostic process and what they'd gone through, what relatives had gone through and, you know, the sorts of things that were being shared on forums. Um, we, We had a look at the literature and actually there's not much out there in and around the diagnostic experience of celiac disease. And then particularly, as you mentioned, it's quite clinically relevant at the moment because there was that change in the guidance, um, the interim guidance that was produced um, during the COVID pandemic and how this diagnostic process and pathways are currently evolving. So it was definitely very clinically relevant and um, it was an interesting opportunity to explore that further. Mm, And can you just talk us through that interim guidance just for people who aren't familiar with that? Yeah, of course. Um, So it was published by the British Society of Gastroenterology. um, And they said that for adults who are under the age of 55 years of old with symptoms that were consistent of celiac disease and no sort of alarm or red red flag symptoms, they could have celiac disease diagnosed based on two separate blood tests rather than the traditional pathway, which was the blood test and the um, endoscopy with biopsy. Um, and it was dependent on certain blood test results, you know, certain levels of the, the TTG. Um, but it was an interesting change to the pathway that patients wouldn't necessarily have to have a biopsy. Hmm, okay, interesting. And this, as you've mentioned, was a qualitative interview study of patients with celiac disease. And the questions you asked them focused on this diagnostic journey of being diagnosed with celiac disease. Um, And I wonder if you could just start talking me through some of the results. Um, The first set of results focused on the theme of pre-diagnostic uncertainty and having a non-specific presentation in general practice. So what did your respondents say about that? Yeah, exactly. So it's really useful because we could talk all the interviews, as you say, covered the whole journey. And the pre-diagnostic stages were quite interesting, as you say. A lot of the symptoms were non-specific, um, which fits very much with the literature. You know, celiac disease has been coined a, a clinical chameleon. So, you know, 
patients presented with a variety of symptoms, often quite non-specific. So the sort of things we come across quite a lot in general practice, abdominal pain, fatigue. Um, and actually, often some patients have been living with these symptoms for years and either they've been living with them and they hadn't re- they'd sort of begin to normalize them. Or some patients have actually had symptoms sort of attributed to alternative diagnoses. So particularly um, irritable bowel syndrome and anemia, um, patients have been living with uh, that sort of diagnostic label for a number of years um, until either they saw a different GP or they thought, hold on, this isn't right. I'm still experiencing these symptoms. And their experience didn't really align with those diagnoses. And the interviews then also talked about the uncertainty throughout their diagnosis and that diagnostic process and having these different investigations. What were their perspectives on that? Yeah, so the investigative phase, as it were, is sort of from when it was thought, "Hmm, could this be celiac disease? And they were um, tested usually at first um, via a blood test. So Interestingly, about half of the people we interviewed didn't know that they were being tested for celiac disease within their blood tests. So that was the first sort of key theme that came out that, you know, perhaps patients weren't aware that they were being tested for celiac disease. So that did lead to some surprise when that came back positive. I think there was one nice quote in the paper by uh, the patient was surprised that it came back positive, but she also said her general practitioner was surprised as well because um, they just, just sort of thrown it in as a, oh, perhaps it's this. And then uh, there was that initial surprise. And then after you had the blood tests, the majority of patients, all but one that we interviewed, then went on to have the um, endoscopy because that was sort of presented to them as the gold standard, the best way to diagnose celiac disease. Um, so during that time period, often patients experience quite long waits. Indeed, quite a lot of patients actually turned to getting private healthcare and private endoscopy services because the waiting times were were very, very long. Um, but during that waiting, that time period as well, there was some uncertainty in around managing diet. And I think different patients have received different, different advice about how they could manage their diet during that time period. Um, and, you know, particularly those who experience symptoms, um, it was quite a challenging time period for them because they know as soon as they stop eating gluten, you know, they, they, they might feel better, but they know that the tests won't be accurate if they're, if they're on it. So that was definitely something that came out as well. Mm. And did patients talk about what their GPs advised them, especially around, for instance, as you mentioned, not eating gluten-containing foods and the impact that might have on their diagnosis at endoscopy? Yeah, we didn't specifically ask that question, but there were certainly um, things that came out in and around that. And I think, as I said, advice was quite conflicting. So, you know, if you think to the guidance, the gold standard advice is continue eating gluten whilst you're having that diagnostic workup. Um, But I think some GPs, particularly in and around uncertainty about when endoscopy might happen, and if if patients were particularly symptomatic, some GPs did advise that patients stopped eating gluten and then they reintroduce it to their diet sort of before the endoscopy. And again, that time period where you're not sure when the endoscopy is going to happen and, you know, you might might have your procedure cancelled and rearranged, it, it just sort of adds to that uncertainty. 
Mm. It's interesting what you said about um, sometimes the anti-TTG test was just thrown in. And I wonder, even from your perspective, this might not have come out from the interviews, but sometimes if you're doing a test group order on ICE or any other sort of clinical ordering software, you do get these tests thrown in, in to a certain extent. Uh, you know, if you're doing a test group for for instance, someone who's tired all the time or certain uh, gastro symptoms. So did anyone talk about that? Or do you have any perspectives about sort of adding these tests in, um, especially from the perspective of patients who also might not know that they're being conducted? Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And actually, one of my colleagues on the um, on the paper, Dr. Jess Watson, she's been doing a lot of work in and around testing and how test results are communicated. Um, and we've had lots of discussions as a team around that as well. Um, because you're right, often these tests are sort of panels um, and you may not go through every single test result with the patient. And particularly as the GP as well, we were saying celiac disease is actually, you know, quite well tested for these days. So patients presenting with abdominal pain, we typically do it. Um, and it's often a test that we do and it rarely, rarely comes back as positive. Um, so I think it, it's one that perhaps you know you may not go into details of counseling patients for but I think actually it, it, it is important to share with patients you know what we're testing for and also linked to the um, diet in and around testing for celiac disease you have to know that your patient's actually eating gluten for it to be um, a um, reliable test so actually we should be asking all our patients before we're testing for celiac disease is your diet containing gluten because more and more patients are you know, turning to gluten-free diets and gluten, you know, potentially having gluten intolerances without seeking medical advice. So, yeah, it's an important thing to consider. Hmm, a really important point there just uh, to keep in the back of our minds. Um, and finally, what were the experiences of the respondents when they actually got that diagnosis finally confirmed? What did they talk to you about there? Yeah, so I think at the point of the confirmation, so when they got those results back from the biopsy, Often patients had come around to the idea that they, they thought they probably did have celiac disease. Um, and actually, they'd spent that timeline whilst they were waiting for endoscopy, often educating themselves about the disease, thinking about what adjustment they'd have to make to their lifestyle, and particularly, obviously, with a focus on diet. Um, so often that helped to reduce the uncertainty. The receipt of the biopsy results was a sort of a rubber stamp. Um, they had the confirmation of the diagnosis. And I think people sort of, overall looked forward to to sort of starting the diet and you know hopefully that they would begin to feel a lot better in themselves as well. Mm. And overall did you get a sense of whether the people you talked to felt that their experiences and the diagnostic journey in general practice was a positive one or did they give you any tips or advice about where the processes could be improved for their experience? Yeah, I think it was very variable. I mean, uh, different GPs probably have different experience in and around celiac disease. So some patients have had a really, really positive experience at the general practitioner. You know, a lot of people were really grateful that they thought of the diagnosis because often patients themselves hadn't heard of the diagnosis or weren't aware that their symptoms might be related to celiac disease. Um, others probably had less, um, less good experiences. Um, so perhaps when symptoms have been attributed to an alternative diagnosis or, um, you know, things haven't been explained very well, 
um, a few patients actually questioned whether or not they should be having an endoscopy or really weren't keen for an endoscopy, but there wasn't really much of a discussion in and around that. And it was very much framed as this is what should, should happen. This is what you need for the diagnosis. Um, so it was a mixed experience. Mm. And what do you feel is the take home message from this work in terms of what we could be doing differently in general practice or any key points about the diagnostic journey, especially focusing on celiac disease? So I think thinking of celiac disease as the diagnosis is obviously key, uh, particularly those patients that perhaps have a history of IBS or unexplained anemia on their record and just looking back to see, you know, have they had ever had a test for celiac disease? Are we sure that this is the cause of their symptoms? And then also, as we spoke about before, checking whether or not they're eating gluten before we think about testing. And just thinking about how we'd explain the testing to patients and at what stage we do that and making sure we're gaining informed consent um, for that initial blood test. Um, and then I think during the diagnostic process, it's quite difficult. I think there's likely to be a lot of variation in local pathways at the moment. So I think, you know, general practitioners, it'd be useful to look up what their local pathway is at the moment. You know, have they made changes based on the interim guidance or, you know, who's performing the endoscopy? It'd be useful if we do have this information available, how long are patients likely to wait um, for getting an endoscopy? And just thinking about how we can support patients it may be useful for them to have a follow-up appointment with the same GP whilst they're waiting for their endoscopy, um, you know, just so they've got that support there, particularly if they're experiencing symptoms. Great, thank you. Yeah, I think that's a really great place to wrap things up. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to say thank you very much for joining me here today. And um, sorry that you have to go back to a busy rest of your afternoon <laughs> clinic. And thank you all very much for your time here and for listening to this BJGP podcast. The original research article can be found on bjgp.org and the show notes and podcast audio can be found at bjgplife.com. Alice mentioned the work from Dr. Jess Watson and we spoke to her back in September 2023 in episode 135 of this podcast on blood tests in primary care if you'd like to take a listen. And if you're interested in hearing more about current research in UK primary care, please do join us at the BJGP Annual Research Conference, which is being held on the 22nd of March in London. The conference website is bjgp.org forward slash conference. We're looking forward to meeting some of you there and catching up during the networking sessions at the event. Thanks again. Bye. Bye.